getting ready for tonight's study, and I recognize the plates coming around, so what is the relationship of the Christian to the law? I don't just mean, you know, the sacrificial system, which has been done away and fulfilled in Christ. I mean, we, we know that. I mean, the law. I mean, the Ten Commandments. All the law. The law in its fullest sense. Does the Christian... Does the Christian have to keep the Ten Commandments? You're sensing this is a trick question, aren't you? The text we have tonight is a, it's a profound text, but it's, it's, uh, it's not Paul at his smoothest writing. It's, uh, Romans 7 is just a hotly debated, contested. I have, uh, I just counted tonight. I have 137 books on Romans in my, in my office. And I would probably have 25 books just dealing with Romans chapter 7. Whole books. I mean, books that have 500 pages in them dealing with just Romans chapter 7. And all sorts of opinions on what Paul was talking about in it. So you can see what we're launching into tonight. But I want you to keep the question that I asked you at the beginning. I just kind of threw it out there. Does the Christian have to keep the law? And think about it as we kind of work through this text. We're just going to do some of the opening verses tonight. I want to talk to you about serving God through the new life of the Spirit. I'm going to try and work through the first six verses of Romans chapter 7. Is that text in your notes? Yes? Okay. Paul writes, and I will try and put this in its context in just a minute. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now he's going to give an illustration, but he's going to stay with this illustration longer than we're comfortable with, and he gets very complicated in it. Thus... A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress. Of course, not, not in today's world, but just generally speaking. She will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies... She's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Okay, so that's, that's part of the picture we have to keep in our minds. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. That's, that's quite a sentence. You also have died to the law. He doesn't say the law is dead, but you've died to the law how did it happen? Through the body of Christ. So that you may belong to another. So you belonged to the law in a certain sense. He's going back to that illustration in marriage. 
so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Okay, that's an important phrase. Something happens. Uh, we are united to Christ. And what happens through that is suddenly there's a fruitfulness, fruitfulness for God that wasn't there before. Now, he's going to make that clear right now. Verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to, to bear fruit for death. So you, there's fruit for God when united to Christ. There's fruit for death when united to the law. You see that contrast? Fruit for God when united to Christ. That's the last part of verse 4. Last part of verse 5, fruit for death when we're united to the law. Verse 6. But now we have been released from the law. Now, what does that mean? Remember my opening question? Does the Christian have to keep the Ten Commandments? We've been released from the law. Having died to that which held us captive... So that we serve, okay, so we've been released, but, but not really released. We've, we've been released, but we still serve. Do you see that, that tension in those words? In verse 6, we've been released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve, not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. What a text. It's one of the most studied and disputed chapters in the whole Bible. The debate usually um, centers around an issue that I, I don't think is the main issue. The debate rages as to whether Romans 7, we just read a little part of it, but the whole chapter, you know, where Paul talks about, you know, that, the thing I want to do, I don't do, but the very thing I don't want to do, that... That's the thing I end up doing. What a wretched man I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? That whole thing. Who is it talking about, this chapter? Is it describing a Christian? Is it describing a backslidden person? Is it describing a brand new Christian who isn't growing in holiness? Is it describing a normal Christian? Is it everybody's experience? Is Paul describing himself? Because he always puts I in there as though he's talking about himself. And if so, at what point in his spiritual experience? So what I'm saying is there's, there's a lot of debate around Romans 7. Let me give you my opinion. My own opinion is Romans 7 isn't about a person at all. Paul isn't describing himself. He's not thinking of any particular individual. It's not a passage about people. It's a passage about, about the law and the spirit and how those two ingredients fight each other in the Christian walk. It's about how life under the new covenant gets lived, as opposed to life under the old covenant. So he's not talking about any particular person, I don't believe. He's trying to explain the role of the law in its past and then in its present relationship to God. So 
so, so brings us right back to it. What is my relationship to the law of God? And if you think about it for a minute, I don't expect you probably think back to all the previous studies. I mean, we're quite a ways in. But, but let me just remind you, okay, in verses that we have studied, here are some things that Paul has said already about the law. He said the law can't produce salvation in Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his, that's God's, sight. He said the law reveals human sin. The last part of Romans 3.20. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul said in his own experience, I wouldn't have known anything about covetousness. I didn't, I, didn't li- I didn't lie. I didn't kill anybody. I didn't steal. And then the law said, you can't covet. It's an inward desire thing, not an outward action. And Paul says, I would have been unaware of that had it not been the law exposed that in me. See, that's what the law does. He's already told us, Romans 3.19, that the law condemns. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's what the law does. Makes everything official before God. I've got my view of right and wrong. You've got your own conscience. Everyone in this room has different convictions. How is this all going to pan out at the end of the age? Paul says, well, God's got the law. And my opinion is not going to be on the scales anywhere. Everybody will be held accountable by the same standard. That's what the, that's what the law does. It, it erases relativism. Here's a frightening one. Paul says, Romans 4.15, the law brings God's wrath. Yes, it's there. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And then he says, Romans 5.20, the law was given to actually increase transgression. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So you look at all that, and it would be very easy to say, okay, Pastor Don, let's go back to your opening question. No, I don't, I don't want anything to do with this law. I'm not going to get a lot of help here from the law. Okay. But Paul says other things. He says the law is holy, righteous, and good. It's in Romans 7.12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy. And righteous and good. That really shouldn't surprise us. I mean, Paul was steeped in the old covenant scriptures, and he surely would have studied David's words in Psalm 19, 7, 8, and 10. The law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then, and then more to be desired are they than gold. Even than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. That's sure different, isn't it? 
And then he says, the life of faith upholds the law, Romans 3.31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So do Christians have to keep the law? I hope you can see it's not a small issue. When we read Sunday morning usually all these passages from the Psalms, okay, of the blessings of the upright, the upright in heart, the righteous, the pure, do we qualify for those things? Like, is that describing us? Who are we talking about, these Old Testament saints under the law and their righteous deeds? Is that how we want to be saved by our works? It's quite a question, isn't it, when you think about all this stuff? Is the law good or bad? Do we keep it or not keep it? Does it matter for the Christian, or does it not matter anymore? You can see why people begin to wonder, where... Where does the law fit into Christian experience? What is, what is my relationship in 2019? What is my relationship to the law of God? So here we are in Romans chapter 7. This is a long introduction. The study won't, don't worry, it's not going to be uh, equivalent in length. It's a long introduction. He's going to describe in this chapter how the law works. In particular, he's going to try and explain how a new relationship with God through Christ automatically changes a person's relationship to the law as well. It comes as part of the package. And the place where Paul introduces the nature of this change most clearly, although it's quite an argument, is in the six verses that we just read at the beginning of Romans chapter 7. Now, those verses, they didn't just hatch out of thin air. I said I'd give you a minute to set them in context. What they are is they're an explanation of an idea that Paul put on the table at the end of the previous chapter because the chapter divisions weren't there in the original documents. Here's what he said in Romans 6. Okay, so we were reading the beginning of Romans 7. Here's Romans 6, 12, 13, and 14. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your, your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been, listen, brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And then he says this. I have it underlined in my notes. For sin will have no dominion over you. Why doesn't sin have dominion over me? Over you? Listen. Because you're not under the law. So this is an important idea. Sin will not have dominion over you because you're not under the law but under grace. So what if I was under the law? What's the converse? Well, sin would have dominion over me, correct? That's what he's saying. Sin won't have dominion over you. You can do this, he's saying. Why? Why can we suddenly do this? Well, you're not under the law anymore. 
Sin will have no dominion over you, 614, since you are not under the law, but under grace. So this is not something we could ever accomplish, this switching of masters. We could never do it in our own strength. The change, the change isn't just an exercise of willpower. This is, this is a result of God's grace coming into my life. It's a result of something Christ has done on my behalf. We were under the law before, but we aren't anymore. And somehow, somehow that shift, just that shift, brought a new power into my life. When we were under the law, he said, sin ruled. And because we aren't under the law anymore, we have potential for sanctifying growth, overcoming sin, transformation, development of a new nature. So my relationship to the law is at the root of either the rule of sin or the rule of righteousness. Does that sound practical to you? The rule of sin in your life or the rule of righteousness. Obviously, we have to get this right, don't we? That seems a really important concept. This is exactly where Romans 7, 1 to 6. Paul addresses three possible attitudes toward the law. Two don't work. Only one will. The first option is that of legalism. People who take very seriously Paul's positive statements about the law, that it is holy, righteous, and good, 7.12. So they try to use that law as a means of attaining, attaining acceptance with God, achieving acceptance with God. Of course, it only leads to deeper despair and condemnation. 3.20 says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. None. This won't work. By the way, please understand, if there's an overworked word in the body of Christ, it's that word legalism. I've, I've, I've been in this church for 36 years, and anytime you talk about any issue pressing holiness into the church, I'll get emails saying, well, Pastor Don, that's legalism. And you guys say, no, no, it's not. No, it's not. Pressing for holiness, that's sanctification. Legalism is when I say, I did this and this and this and this, and therefore, I am accepted with God. It's when you use works as a means of justification rather than loving Christ with all your heart and desiring anything you can possibly do to please him. Those are two totally different things. Legalism is not pursuing holiness. Legalism is using the law to earn justification. That's what legalism is. So Paul says that won't work. You can't do it with the law. Then there are what are called antinomians or libertarians. And they see themselves, we're free in Christ. Free in Christ Jesus. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Verses like that. And they equate liberty with doing their own thing. Don't judge me. I'm under grace. I can, I can do what I want. Praise God. I'm accepted in the beloved. They're the ones Paul addresses in 6.1 when he says, what, what are we going to say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace will abound? And he says, that's ridiculous. That's nuts. There's a third option. 
The third option is one that Paul designates with this complicated term of righteousness as the fruit of the Spirit. It's in that sixth verse of Romans 7. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve, we still serve, we're not our own lords, we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. So, because the law is powerless to produce righteousness, it can only demand it. Another source of power is required to help us with holiness. This is, this is the inward change the Holy Spirit works in our hearts who experience, co-experience the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's how I'm wrapping up with point number one. I'm going to talk about three things. Paul has a principle. That'll be the first point. He has an illustration. That'll be the second point. And then he makes an application, and that'll be the third point. Y'all still with me? Okay. The principle is laws are only binding on the living, not the dead. I mean, it makes sense. This part isn't complicated. He says in Romans 7, 1, Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Laws are for living people. Um, If you have a legal contract with me and I die, you may find a lawyer and go after somebody else, but you aren't going after me. I'm done. Death frees from the law every time. That's the principle. Then the illustration. The illustration Paul chooses, it takes that above principle and extends it not to dead people, but to people who are still alive. And this is the complicated part. It's in 2 and 3 of chapter 7. Thus, so that means he's still thinking of this idea that death separates a person from the law. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. This is a brilliant stroke by Paul. I mean, most of us can understand how the law has no claim on the dead. But I'm looking around the room tonight. Okay, some of you don't look in great shape. But we're alive, okay? We're breathing. We're alive. We're all trying to serve Jesus while we're alive. So, so how is it possible that our relationship to the law can be so transformed that we're no longer, to use Paul's terms, under the law, 614, or held captive by the law, 7-6. And that's why Paul chooses this illustration from marriage. Because not only is the deceased husband released from the covenant of marriage, but also the living widow. That's why she's called an adulteress, verse 3, if she lives with another man while her husband is still living. But she's not an adulteress, verse 3, 
if her husband has died. Her condition is changed. Even as she lives, her relationship to that law is totally changed. Her marriage covenant is changed by the death of her husband. She is released from that law by the death of someone else. Guess who that is for you and for me? Christ and his death on the cross. He fulfilled all the law. Every demand of the law was fulfilled perfectly in him. There is, and I am in him. There is nothing left in my life to be completed under the law. It's been totally satisfied in Christ. The application of this truth to contemporary Christians. The application of this truth to the contemporary Christian through the death and life of Christ and the fruit-producing power of the Spirit. It's in 4, 5, and 6. Now, these verses, there's, these are like theologically weighty. They're not light, devotional, breezy. So let's think as we read 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. You're not dead, you're alive. You died through the body of Christ. He really died and fulfilled the law. So that you may belong to him. Now think about marriage again. Remember Paul said if, 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 uh, if a woman marries another man while her husband is still there, she's an adulteress. But, but if he's dead, she can marry someone else. And she's not held by that law anymore. So now we've been, we died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. The result of this, that you may bear fruit for God. For while you were living in the flesh, that's Paul's description of someone outside of Christ, okay? We're all in the flesh in that we're in bodies, but that's not what he means. He means separated from Christ. While you were in the flesh, uh, yeah, five. While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, that's what the law did, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now... We are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve, we still serve, not under the old written code, but, but in the new life of the Spirit. There's so many things you could say here, but let's try and simplify it. I want to say two things. First, he says, we died to the law through the body of Christ. We spent last Sunday night looking at this. I talked about baptism in Romans 6, 3, 4, and 5, where he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We participate in that death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life, just, just as surely as Christ came out of the grave, newness of life manifested in us that was never possible under the law. 
5. For we, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So in Christ's death, my participation in it, the demands of the law, they've been fully satisfied. Nothing's been ignored. Nothing's been overlooked. Paul says in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. There's no curse left in it. By becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is Paul's response to the legalist. The law can't be used to earn merit before God because there's nothing left to be paid from my account. Christ's death did two things. He bore the curse of the law for me, and he opened the door to the promised work of the Holy Spirit in my heart. I said there were two issues in the application. Here's the second one. We die to the law only so, that's what it should say, we can be united to Christ. I get that in that fourth verse of chapter 7. Therefore, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. This was the whole idea. This is the end game, that you might belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. The legalist is wrong. The libertarian is wrong. This isn't in your notes. I scribbled some thoughts down just at the beginning of the service. So you, you won't get any help from your notes. You might just even put them away. I was thinking how to wrap this up. In Romans 10.4, it's not in your notes. In Romans 10.4, Paul makes this comment. It's as, it's as striking a summation of what I've been talking about. In Romans 10.4, he says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It strikes me that he doesn't just say Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. He says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. If you're going to use this law to earn your standing with God, you're doomed. It will never work. Christ is the end of the law as a standard to keep for acceptance with God. When we were outside of Christ, the law of God only aroused rebellion at some deep level in our hearts. Resentment, anger, confusion. And that's why I think Paul's marriage illustration is so brilliant. Here's what the coming of the Spirit of God does to my pursuit of holiness. I liken it this way. When the Holy Spirit comes, he does to my desire for holiness what my marriage does to my desire for faithfulness. And my desire to be faithful to my wife is a joy. 
I don't get up every morning and say, I'll see you, sweetheart, give her a kiss, and say, Oof, I guess another 24 hours, just you, nobody else. I'll be faithful, don't worry, I'll be faithful, I'll be faithful. There's a lot of women out there, but I'll, I'll be faithful. Okay? Happy anniversary. That, that isn't, that's, that's, that's not a job for me. It, it's not a chore for me. The, the, the love in the relationship, it, now I, I still, you could say, Pastor Don, but you would still be an adulterer if you weren't faithful. And yes, I would be. So does the law still exist? Yeah, but, I, but I'm not going out the door thinking about the law every day. I'm going out the door thinking about Rini every day. Do you see the difference? One is relational. The other is codified. Paul is saying, you're never going to get there this way. You will never get there this way. So, let me give you my answer to the question I asked so you don't have to do it. Do I have to keep the Ten Commandments? There's a sense in which the way I want to answer that is I fulfill the Ten Commandments. I never think about keeping them. I never think about keeping them. That's what Paul means. Christ is the end of the law. That's not what you're looking to. You don't look to the law for righteousness anymore. You know what happens when you look to the law for righteousness? You'll find loopholes. Look at the Pharisees. They go at this with Jesus over and over and over with all these little loopholes and regulations, and they care about so many things, and Jesus says, you don't care about righteousness and justice and mercy. You think about how much grain you're putting in little piles to give to the temple. What's with you, Jesus is saying. Is there work in the Christian life? Yes, there is. Work motivated by love. This doesn't go against any of the stuff we're studying in the morning from Second Peter. Add to your faith discipline and virtue and knowledge. It, it, you exercise all those things. But you're not doing it so God will love you. You're doing it because you love God. And here's the illustration I'm wrapping up with. Sorry, Tom. He's looking at me back there. You have to forgive me. Jesus said so. Consider this. It's just an illustration. Jacob. He's going to get a wife. Remember? He sees Rachel. He's going to get swindled, but let's just forget about that for a minute. He sees Rachel, and he's, in the Hebrew he says, hubba hubba, this is... And Laban says, you can have her. She didn't seem to have any say in that. I'm sorry, ladies. It, you have to work for me. I think it's, is it seven years? Seven years. And then the text says, and he works for Laban seven years, and it seemed like days. Why? Because this is the perfect illustration. He's not focused on the work. He's focused on Rachel. I do fulfill the commandments. Do I live my life trying to keep the commandments? Not in your life. I live my life thinking about Jesus. And you fulfill the commandments in a way that the Pharisees and their legalism never possibly could. That's a convoluted passage. Do you feel like you got a little bit of a handle on some of the stuff that's in there? 